Joining uh, Junior and me in the studio now, Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer for our weekly left, right, and center go around the table. And uh, nice to see you both again. Yeah, Thank you. Jim. You know what I like about this studio as opposed to the old studio we used to work in? We actually, it actually is a round table. We actually are sitting at a round table. Yeah. And it sort yeah. of does have that sort of left, right, center, and wherever you want to be thing. <laughs> uh, I'd like to start the, today by asking you guys a question that we covered very, very briefly earlier today. And uh, the bill apparently is now in on the evacuation of Canadians from Lebanon during the recent unpleasantness there. Uh, the government won't confirm it, but CTV says it's about $85 million. Lots of people at that time, lots of people now, and in the aftermath of this number, are going to be complaining yet again about uh, what is Canadian citizenship, what does it really mean, should you be able to be a Canadian citizen, claim citizenship, and yet live in another country for long periods of time, what is the nature of citizenship. I made some comments, uh, I think alluding back to the sort of the historical beginnings of this and the nation state where your citizenship reflected entirely where you were born and raised and chose to live. You could change your citizenship by changing where you lived, but it was uh, highly unusual for someone to be born, say, in Germany, move to England, uh, become an Englander, uh, and then move somewhere else and claim that he was both English and German. It was it, it just you didn't do that sort of thing. You went to your new land, and that's where you stayed. And if you went to another new land, you sort of assimilated there, and you became that person. For the most part, not everyone, of course, and not people who were in transit, not merchants who were moving all the time, that sort of thing, but people who were settling down and bringing, building lives. You left one land behind, one way of life behind, and you adopted the one in the country you went to, and that's the way it is. And now we have the situation where we have lots of people with dual citizenship, where they're citizens of one country, then they decide, well, this country perhaps doesn't have the future I'd like for me and my family, so we're going to move to another country. Many of them move to Canada. We'll get citizenship there, too. Now we have dual citizenship. And, oh, by the way, things aren't so bad back in the home country anymore. I think I'll go back for six months or eight months or a year or whatever and hang around. But I'm still a Canadian citizen, you know, and if there's any trouble, the government of Canada better spring to my assistance, and they better do it right smartly or I'm going to be screaming to the CBC, which we saw happening a lot. Jeff, I'd like to ask you whether you have any personal thoughts on this issue of of divided loyalties. Ultimately, to me, the the uh, the purpose of citizenship, one of the purposes, is is to to define who you believe you are and to whom you are prepared to give your loyalties. Can we reasonably expect someone to give the same kinds of loyalty to two different countries? Well, I would say yes, you can. And I think that the idea of the nation state is something that in the next couple of centuries will hopefully become less relevant than it is now. And that uh, as the country, or as, as technology advances and the world becomes smaller, so to speak, uh, people travel more, their businesses are far more interconnected. Um, I think that uh, nations will hopefully become less relevant. And part of the reason I hope that is because so many wars have been based on, on uh, national pride. Um, I guess when you mention this issue, the overriding thing that, that occurs to me is that every country controls its definition of citizen. It's not imposed on it by anybody else. So in Canada, for instance, if we wanted to say, well, you can be a citizen, but uh, you know, if you've become a citizen from another country, we're not going to come and rescue you if that country goes sideways, for instance. It's perfectly open to us to, to do that. Uh, we also control things like taxation. If you're going to earn in, uh, have earnings in another country, we may decide that we're going to take some tax for that, for example, as part of the price of maintaining citizenship. Uh, but I have 
noticed from time to time how with kind of trouble spots around the world, how there are people who have come back from Canada. I was, uh, there was listening to a woman on the radio last week who um, is living in Baghdad now, had escaped as a refugee from Saddam Hussein's regime, lived in Canada for, I don't know, 20 years or something, and is now back there um, kind of uh, fighting for kind of women's rights, basically, in Baghdad, uh, and I guess is uh, kind of a great risk because there are a lot of the fundamentalist Muslims don't seem to be on the same page as far as women's rights. Uh, but again, somebody who's, who's gone to Canada when things uh, uh, got too bad, but has come back to try and help sort things out. I, I recall that the, uh, I, I believe it was the president of one of the um, one of the Baltic states. Uh, it was Latvia, or Estonia, Lithuania. One of the three, anyway. Uh, when the um, when the Berlin Wall came down and uh, the USSR fell apart, uh, the woman who became the president there was a Canadian citizen, mm-hmm. somebody who had been born there but had lived all of her life in Canada and uh, went back there. Uh, and, and I think that that's not a bad thing. And, and I, I've, I've been struck over time by how one of the uh, ways that uh, Western society has sort of um, had influence was that uh, for at least from the 1800s on, it became traditional for the children of the uh, of the elite of whatever country, third world country it was to go to Harvard, for instance, or go to Yale. Uh, you know, we saw a ton of Japanese people do that uh, in the late 1800s, for example. And so, you know, they go to the to, to us, uh, they kind of uh, are exposed to our way of thinking about things, and hopefully we have some influence over them, and then they go back to where they came from, and hopefully... But you know, they didn't come here and become American citizens. Uh, well, some do and some don't, but again, from my perspective, citizenship is, is a legal, arbitrary legal concept, and I understand what you're saying about loyalty to a place, uh, and uh, again, to me, that means loyalty to uh, the values of that country uh, more so than the geographic part of it, for instance. Um, so I understand what you're saying about that, but again, at root, I, uh, maybe it's my lawyer mind thinking that, well, we can structure our definition of citizenship, and we can decide who we allow to become citizens in a way that should benefit the country. The, is that the little one that's down there near the reptile brain? Is that, oh, I know. Is that the same one? The same with the same yeah. uh, slimy kind of scaly uh, skin. <laughs> Bob, what do you think? Oh, I think I'm completely out of touch with both of you guys on this issue. Uh, Jim, on one side, you're talking about citizenship defines who you are. It's about divided loyalties. Jeff is saying that it's an arbitrary legal concept. Uh, citizenship, for me, is all about the relationship of the citizen, an individual, to their government, specifically that government which protects their fundamental rights. I'm a citizen of Canada. I'm a resident of Ontario. I'm a resident of London. Uh, Canada is the government of my citizenship. Mm -hmm. Citizenship is also jurisdictional, based on land, property, uh, which it has to be in order to be functional. This is something the Romans discovered when they put Rome together. That's why Rome became great. And to say that geography doesn't matter, as Jeff said, that was the exact thing that Rome solved. Everyone was defining themselves by nation-states, by, by their race, by their religion. And Rome brought all that together under the rule of law, although some people thought that was terrible in the context of today's standards. Of mm-hmm. course, they had great um, problems in Rome. <laughs> Individual rights were not discovered yet, let's face it. But structure was discovered in the basic um, necessity of governments. But... Um, 
to speak to the bigger issue about dual citizenship, I think it's like you want to take your jurisdiction with you, you know, portable jurisdiction. I'm a Canadian citizen, but I expect all my same rights and privileges to be honored no matter which country I go to. That's just, I mean, the country could if it wished and had the resources, um, you know, even act just on humanitarian grounds to do almost anything anywhere in the world if it wanted to. But I think in terms of its obligation, I think that's all within its jurisdiction. I don't think you stick your nose in other countries' businesses well, in there, that sense. Is there any purpose then, in, except in some very specific cases where I mentioned, and you do see this Canada, the United States, and other countries too, where a, a child is born in that country and, and, and by virtue of the rules of that country is a citizen, mm-hmm. but his, his parents are citizens of another country, so he is by virtue of the rules in most of those countries he's a citizen there too and for at least part of his life he has that that dual option in some situations it, it expires and others it does not but except for those acted accidents of birth sure, and that's agreements between countries as well is there any purpose ever to be a useful purpose do you think to be served by having by by serving uh, you know two leaderships really uh, um i can see what what the benefit perceived benefit of dual citizenship is, but I don't think dual citizenship is required to get that perceived benefit. I think all you need is agreements between countries. Um, you don't have to be both, say, a British and Canadian citizen to have, uh, say, lax or travel restrictions between the two. If they know you're one or the other, and as long as those countries have that condition, because believe me, even if they had dual citizenship and one of the countries became antagonistic to the other, I'll tell you that dual citizenship is going to fall apart real mm-hmm. quick, just as quickly as an agreement would. Would, uh, you know, of travel and, and border issues that, that countries naturally have. But I think jurisdiction is extraordinarily important. Um, I don't know that most people know, but until 1990 or so, you know, generally in Ontario, you did not have to be a citizen to vote either municipally or provincially. You had to be a taxpayer. The idea of that was, which is a whole other dimension of, of government personal relationship is um, representation, you know, taxation through representation, that it was the people being taxed who were, had a right to representation, but that was at local levels and provincial levels, not citizenship is a slightly different thing because it deals with more, um, let us say abstract issues, the issues of rights and freedoms and mm-hmm. not just property issues and and, uh, and those technicalities, roads and works and things would like we, that. Would we know? be would we be any the worse off, do you think, either one of you, if we were to say, in the aftermath of what happened in Lebanon, the concern that people expressed about that with dual citizenship there, would we be any worse off if we were to decide, and Jeff, you made the point, and so did you, Bob, that these are these are decisions that we can make. If we said, uh, you know, Canadian citizenship is a valuable thing, and uh, and and provided you can meet the criteria for that, we're happy to share it with you. But you have to make some decisions yourself. You're either a Canadian or you're not. You can't be a Canadian and a Ukrainian. You can't be a Canadian and Lebanese. You can't be a Canadian and a and a and a Chilean. You're either a Canadian or you're not. If we were to adopt a rule like that, would that help or hurt us, Jeff? Well, I don't know that much about it. I, on the one hand, uh, it's I, I'm sort of thinking in the back of my mind that I'm, I'm wondering whether that might be the case with the United States because when I think about Canadian celebrities who have taken on American citizenship, it seems to they, they never seem to be dual citizens after that. And I'm thinking of um, 
who was the uh, the news anchor who died last year. Peter uh, Jennings. Yeah, that uh, him switching Michael J. Fox. So those guys, that when they've switched, it seems to me they never say they're joint citizens. They say they've they're Americans now. Uh, so I'm not sure whether that might already be the rule there. Uh, as far as why they do that, I have no idea. Except that in the back of my mind, I'm kind of thinking that it's not that easy to become a citizen to start with in Canada. Usually, we kind of cherry pick the people um, who are just going to somebody who shows up in Canada and says, "I'd like to be a citizen." Uh, they better have skills that we need. They better have. There, there is an exception if you've got a certain amount of money, we'll let you in. So the people that we're letting in, uh, we I think as a government think are going to make Canada a better place. So it may be part of the horse trading we do to say, okay, well we're glad to have you, glad to have your skills, glad to have your money, and if you want to stay a citizen of the other place, that's fine too. But we're going to tax you and all that stuff. So I guess there are probably some. There may be some thinking that the majority of dual citizens are people who are a. Um, who are desirable people to have coming to our country and that we're willing to trade with them uh, on something like that in order to get them. But I don't know that. So uh, it's okay to buy your citizenship but not to buy your own health care? Well, yeah, and I get, uh, you know, they pay it through their taxes. But uh, it does strike me, though, when I mentioned earlier about how it's not a geographic thing, I was thinking about how, as Bob mentioned, when, when your mother country goes uh, in another direction and suddenly you're a German-Canadian in World War I, for instance, it was striking how most of the immigrants seem, seem and this is a little bit different than dual citizenship, but there really didn't seem to be a big um, of conflict uh, of the mind or the heart for most of the people who had come over. They seemed to decide we're Canadians, yeah, we're exactly Americans. Right. Yeah. Uh, the Japanese, for instance, I was just reading about the uh, the most highly decorated American unit in uh, in the Italian campaign in World War II were Japanese yes. Americans. Uh, so it's interesting how geography actually does have a lot to do with it. We're going to pause for just a second. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center on the Jim Chapman News Hour on 94.9 CHRW. See if you can remember all of that. Our program continues. Continues here. Uh, Jim Chapman. Bob Metz, Jeff Schlemmer with you. Guys, I want to talk about something a little closer to home. We were just chatting very briefly during the break there about this garbage business. And I said uh, the, the moment the story broke and the story was painted as we had surprised politicians. And I said, I can't imagine anybody could be surprised by this. This is You could see this coming halfway down the 401. Michigan's shutting down. Uh, they've already gone through all the stuff about taking it up to Kirkland Lake and dumping it down the mine. They had a guy who had the, I believe, even had the train cars purchased at one point to to do that. They had the, all of the environmental things done in the, in the mine and all this sort of stuff. And the uh, the NIMBY folks, the not in my backyard people up there, put up such a fight that they said that's not going to happen. There's no place else with the uh, infrastructure in place, with the land purchased and being functional, you know, functioning now in, in, the, in the way that Green Lane is. And uh, I don't think, I mean, I'm, nobody I know who knows anything about this business expected anything other than Toronto was coming down here sooner rather than later and was going to put the moves on that place. Um, I, I thought it was patently absurd that so many of the politicians were, were expressing surprise on Monday. And today, uh, and I said this earlier, our four local liberal MPs or MPPs are in high dudgeon about this. And they're going to march down to Toronto and by gosh and by golly, they're going to fix that. They're not going to fix any such thing. I don't think. What do you guys think? There, there's nothing to fix. Everything's okay. 
This is this is business as usual. Um, I've known Bob McCaig since uh, a couple of London garbage strikes ago when Freedom Party rented a bunch of trucks and we went up cer- up and down certain streets in London, picked up people's garbage, and we dumped it out there at his landfill site. And uh, ever since I've known Bob, I mean, he's he's got a rep for really having one top-notch landfill site, yeah. and it's it's right up to spec. It's yeah. got plenty of years left in it. Toronto's already selling garbage to to him, as are many other municipalities, although a lot of it's private and industrial and stuff like that. This is just the city of Toronto getting, and they're not going to sell all the garbage or or move all of it. And contrary to what our politicians locally are saying, you can sure tell the elections on, uh, Toronto was ahead of London in terms of all sorts of environmental recycling and taking care of their garbage. And doing business with other communities is one of those means. You aren't going to be dependent on landfills forever. Technology's coming along pretty soon. It's going to change the whole landscape again, pardon the pun. Mm -hmm. And... um, so you almost wonder if uh, Toronto is going to get its $500 million value out of that landfill. Of course, it could use it regardless, you mm-hmm. know, uh, before some technology makes it less economical. But uh, that's bound to happen. I think one of the big issues, of course, is transport, but I don't think it's going to be that much different from re- what we're used to now. Well, my contention was that it doesn't matter whether we like it or not, or whether well, it's, it's a... It's none of our business, really. So, well, well, not so much that, but if Toronto wants it, Toronto's going to have it. And, and to pretend otherwise down here at this end of the 401 that we could stop any initiative that Toronto, with its large hmm. plur- plurality of liberal MPPs... Well, no, that's not true. If Bob McCaig wants it, he can have it. Toronto cannot force Bob McCaig to sell them his landfill site. No, but he okay. is prepared to sell. Well, he is, and yes. that's that's the major issue. And yeah. anybody who came up with the dollars or the price or, or a contract, uh, which I understand was the other alternative that Toronto was offered, and they were going to be given a contract, the garbage is going there even under Bob McCaig's ownership. Yes. So <laughs> the, everybody's complaining about the ownership, as though... You know, evil Toronto is going to be living right next door right now. We, we'll still be selling our garbage to the same dump, you know. I just hope the government can run it as well as Bob McCaig has, because he's uh, a shining example of what private enterprise does for all these public, you know, issues that Jeff, people what keep about talking you? about. Well, I, I've been um, surprised over the years by how often things have been announced as a done deal, and then... And then uh, uh, it hits the fan and things change. And I believe that it was a done deal that the garbage was going up to the mine shaft uh, up north and uh, then it was all kinds of environmental assessments and, as you say, the lobbying and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, and, and tactically, it's always a question, if you want to get something done that you know is going to be controversial, do you try and ram it through really quickly or do you do it slowly and give all kinds of po- time for consultation, which allows opposition to build? Um, and, you know, it depends. Uh, opinions vary on that. But I don't think we'll have heard the last of it uh, uh, and I think that uh, although they may end up eventually uh, succeeding in doing it, I, I, my first thought when I when I heard it was surely taking all of Toronto's garbage is going to be quite a different uh, density of use than what this thing had been approved for, and surely that's a pretty big change. And it seems like you can't make any big change in Ontario anymore without some regulatory agency vetting it, and that never happens without public consultation. And all of those things will tend to drag it down. Now I guess they've got a few years before they would plan to start using it in detail anyway, but. 
but uh, uh, don't forget, I, Bob McCaig went through all those processes in the private. Yes, yeah, that's as why I, the dump is so ready as far to go. As I know it is. It's it's a fait accompli. But I don't. I, I can do it. Well, and again, but uh, government can change the law overnight, and there are lots of times when people have thought that things were okay. And one of the things it reminded me of was but the. But this uh, government's not going to change that law. Not in favor of London over Toronto. Well, I don't know. Uh, it, you know, I guess they'll do their polls and everything else. But I was reminded of the uh, of the Gray Mac apartment flip back in Toronto in the early seventies, where uh, a lawyer came in and bought a bunch of apartments and uh, flipped them overnight, and then doubled the rents to pay for the uh, doubled cost and that was the uh, genesis of rent control mm-hmm. it was one deal and he, the deal he did was perfectly legal when he did it but people were upset about it and the government latched onto this as a politically popular issue and suddenly we had rent control but this will not be a political popular popular issue for a for a toronto gov for a liberal government in toronto to say to the people of toronto you can't send your garbage to london but why That's would they why would we even expect them to why would anybody even want that to be an option leave it alone uh, everything's happening as it should <laughs> you know i don't see a problem there's no problem for the environment there's no problem there's nothing well, changing. you need to get on the phone to our local uh, mpps then because they're going to rush down there and oh, change well, everything we're going to be surprised for toronto too that you I, know what i find fascinating about elections lately people going for elections pick issues about which they can do nothing have no jurisdiction mm-hmm. over put it all over the front pages of the paper so that we're not noticing that the jlc is losing three hundred thousand dollars a month we're not n- noticing that that the downtown is not the big story that they keep telling us it is we're not noticing all the wonderful things that we're being told constantly so that way you make an issue out of other jurisdictions and london behaves no differently than toronto with respect to our garbage when we were making negotiations and we're making deals around and well, and, I, and I don't, I don't know anything about garbage. So, like, I'm not saying that it's good, bad, or indifferent. I have no idea. Um, although I haven't read anything about why this site is um, geographically better than any other place. I, I hear that he's got approvals, which is fine, which again would seem to be government stuff. And I, you know, uh, if the mayor of Toronto is saying that they haven't been able to get a similar approval out of the provincial government, it makes me wonder a bit about how politically connected they are. But the other thing is that people I know in Toronto are way more environmentally conscious than we are in London. And it's not, I don't think you should assume that as a monolithic group, they're all going to say, thank goodness the garbage is just getting the hell out of our city. We no, and that's not goes. happening. I, I think a lot of people in Toronto probably will say, this is, uh, what was the uh, phrase I heard this morning? an old world solution, you know, and that uh, so I, I don't think people should assume that tr- Torontonians are all going to say this is good. I bet you that there's going to be a good chunk of them, a very vocal chunk who will say this is well, bad. Well, I think all of them who can unwrap their arms around the trees will say that, but I don't think very many other ones will. We're going to pause for a second. We'll be back right after this. Schlemmer, Metz, and Chapman today on the News Hour talking about this, that, and the other thing. Let me just amplify my last comment there when I said people could take their arms from around the trees. I think, Jeff, you're probably right that all the tree huggers and all the uh, environmental, uh, um, um, environmentally excitable in Toronto would, would, would follow what you're saying. But my guess is the vast majority of people in Toronto will just be glad to get rid of the damn garbage. Maybe, but remember the mayor is a card-carrying member of the NDP. Like it's... It's, well, there, there are layers there, that and and more is the pity. But, but, but that's the tree hugger. That's an issue for that's an issue for another day. And he may not be the mayor much longer too, with any kind of luck. Uh, one other question, very very quick question to ask you guys: uh, Jack Layton um, taking a lot of flack from the troops. It appears now we're getting letters from the troops and so on that are appearing in newspapers, questioning his. Uh, the the NDP support for withdrawal, saying you should be talking to us, the people here, and asking us whether we want to be here and not uh, consulting your own party members as to whether they think we should be here. Think that this makes any difference at all in the NDP's political chances, whatever they might be? 
uh, well, I, I guess I think the NDP are are saying what I would expect them to say. So in that sense, I don't think anybody's going to change votes as a result of what they're saying. Uh, if, if uh, again, they're getting letters from soldiers saying that uh, they consider that they're not supporting them by saying that they should come home, I guess it's free country and they're perfectly free to say that. Uh, whether they're right or wrong, I guess history will judge. Well, you would think someone closer to the front would have a better bird's-eye view of what's going on than us sitting back here armchairing. Um, I find it ironic through the whole issue, the whole Mideast thing, that generally the troops that are over there, either American or Canadian or from any group, British alike, uh, are all dedicated. They know why they're there. They know what their purpose is, and they think it's a valid purpose. It's These are, you know, volunteer armies. Mm-hmm. They're not over there throwing their lives away. They're not there to sacrifice their this life. This is Vietnam, and that's... No. 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 And so for us to sit back here and say, you know, it's not worth it because we're panicking over, again, I think we mentioned this before, uh, you know, every death is tragic, but look at our traffic toll in this city. Look at the toll from so many other causes. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't compare to them. I wouldn't say more. that the person on the front line necessarily is in the best position to know what the strategic situation is or the political situation. And, and when I've read uh, books uh, No, but they go to the trouble to find out, you know. Well, I'm well, talking I've, to people who've been there and back, and yeah. then they do read more research to find out these why are, they went. People, after all, though, who see the war not filtered through the eyes of the reporters, and everybody on this side of the water sees it filtered through somebody Well, again, but I, what I was going to say was that I've read books about particular battles written by individual soldiers in the battle, and they have a certain perspective uh, from seeing what it's like in the trench and so on. But the, to read about the same battle by the general who commanded it, they may have a totally different perspective and see things totally different. They will have. Absolutely. But the things they're saying, though, the things the soldiers are saying, they're talking, they tend to be talking about what the other things they're doing other than fighting. About uh, about the rebuilding and schools and the way the world way the world is changing over there and girls being able to go to school now and a variety of other things that that they see on an, on a day to day basis. Well, I've heard that they've asked that that occur, but uh, what I've also read is that we haven't spent spent nearly what we said we were going to spend on that. But I guess uh, I, I heard yesterday or it was yesterday the day before the British commander over there who is in charge of the Canadians talking about how the Canadians have won a historic victory. It was going to be the turning point in the war mm-hmm. and so on. And I just thought, oh my God, where have I heard that before? Well, exactly right. We I commented about that too. That how many of those headlines have we seen in the last 50 years? That, uh, well, the, the war is over, you know, pieces of bonus. Yeah, and I, and I heard Stephen Harper on Saturday uh, say that uh, we're in the final stages of this war, uh, but I also read that uh, Pakistan has now decided that they're not going to uh, try to block any more shipments by the Taliban coming yeah. across the border. Yeah. I'm thinking, so now they've got a free uh, free lines of supply. Yeah. Uh, what's good about that? In what sense is that near the end? The boys are playing in the next room, so we boys have to get out of here. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Jeff. A pleasure as always. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Folks, if you've enjoyed this portion of the program, please do drop us a line. Jim Chapman at Rogers.com. If there's a topic you'd like to have us to take up on a given day, let us know that too, and we'll put it on our agenda for you. Get together again tomorrow at 11. Take a look at the news of the world. See if we can, through our collective intelligence, try to make some kind of sense out of it. In the meantime, for Junior the Wonder Dog, for Bob and Jeff and James, it's Jim saying take care of each other, find how you go, and God bless. Bye-bye.
If you've enjoyed this presentation, visit www.justrightmedia.org for more programming that's not right-wing, it's just right.